In today's episode, Shelly, I'm so excited. Emily Nagoski is here. Finally, we've been talking about it for a while. Mary is fangirling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just think the book is so fantastic and she's funny and such a great, it was such a great interview. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about it like it already happened. Which it did. Which it did. And we're recording this after the fact. (laughs) (laughs) So we know for sure that it is and was a phenomenal interview. Yeah. So please stay tuned for all that. We'll be right back. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. My name is Mary. I'm Shelly. And Shelly, we have a special guest today. I'm super excited. It's not like you haven't been, like, talking about it nonstop for <laughs> I weeks. Know. I have been talking about this just a little bit. <laughs> so our guest today is Dr. Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are, the book we've been talking about for... I don't know, weeks now? Been a while. So excited. Uh, Emily has a PhD in health behavior with a minor in human sexuality from Indiana University and a master's degree in counseling, also from IU, with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. Wow, you sound really impressive. Yeah, I hear that and I'm like, oh, I'm qualified. (laughs) (laughs) You do. Oh, you're qualified. Oh, for sure. I mean, at least qualified to come on to the Latter-day Lesbian podcast. I actually have uh, grad school stories about Mormons because one of my office mates, as a grad student, you share an office. I shared an office with three other grad students, and uh, one of them was a Mormon from Idaho. Oh, that's the place. One of them, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet this person was very nice. Oh, she was great. She was one of the nicest <laughs> human beings I've ever met in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She got married while we were in grad school. We started together. She took uh, like a year or two longer to finish than I did because she got married in the meantime. And she's one of the people I got to know who helped me become a better sex educator by teaching me how to be a sex educator to a person whose values were really different from my own personal sexual values. Oh, yep. Okay, so you already were prepped for this interview based on that experience. Oh, yeah, I was super excited. I was, I mean, (laughs) because people have such varied experiences. Like, it was a really good fit for her and her life. But it totally had that impact that contradictory sexual messaging can have when they're like, sex is terrible and bad and dangerous until you get married, and then it's everything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the expectation that goes with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. She had never had an orgasm. She didn't know whether or not she was having orgasms with sex. Like, she went through a whole big thing. Wow. But she was a delightful, spectacular human being. And I was Uh broke in grad school because I was broke in grad school. And she heard me on the phone with my bank in the office. And the next day, she brought me a bag of groceries. Aww. No, that sounds exactly like something that a Mormon would do. They're very sweet. Mm -hmm. Our next door neighbors are are Mormon, and they brought us cookies on Halloween. Mm -hmm. How nice. Right? When I hung out with a group of them, they were incredibly patient and kind when I was asking questions, but what happens if the husband dies first? (laughs) They had no answer. (laughs) Whoopsie. (laughs) But they were, like, so generous and patient with me. And they were like, you only go to hell if you know and don't believe. And I was like, then y'all better not tell me because I'm not going to believe. That's that so great. Funny. And so Mormon. And Emily, come on. It's outer darkness. Come on. No, you're missing it. <laughs> Mary forgets. Outer darkness is reserved for people who had like true testimonies like the prophet. And then they say it's not true. Uh, That's yeah. the special outer darkness. So unless I met a prophet. Well, and you can't be because you're a woman. So oh, okay. oh. yeah, you're safe. You're good. Yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm guessing your roommate <laughs> never got the mirror out to check out what was happening downstairs. Not to my knowledge. (laughs) Doubtful. (laughs) I love that part in the book, by the way, where you could just like examine your parts. Get to know your parts. You're totally allowed. (laughs) That's a scary thing for Mormons slash ex-Mormons because it's... It's just so taboo. Your parts are not to be touched. Oh, yeah. They're not to be examined because that means touching it. You just don't. Leave it alone. Yeah. 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 Even within marriage, you're not supposed to, at least this was my upbringing within Mormonism, you're not supposed to even like touch yourself to get prepped for the act. Like this is a no, 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 no. Right. Wow. 
And imagine how your genitals feel about that. Horrible. <laughs> they're so sad. Yeah, their experience is like, but can't I be part of the body too? No. Oh, yeah. Like, am I not just as much of a gift from God as the rest of you? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Well, no. because sex is for procreation, not for pleasure. Really? Now, that was a Mormon teaching years ago, but I think it still carries through. Well, it's definitely not for pleasure outside of the traditional heterosexual marriage model. Absolutely. That's the only time it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, no touchy. No. So when we wrote to you, and I uh, think we were, I was corresponding a bunch with your husband. The nicest person on the planet. Well, he seems lovely. Yeah, I haven't met him in person or even on Zoom or whatever, but he seems very lovely. He's very conscientious with the uh, correspondence. Go, Richard. Yay, Richard. <laughs> but one of the letters I wrote was about that uh, listener whose mother or parents took the door bathroom door off the hinges or uh, her bedroom door off the hinges and then sat on the toilet while she'd showered to make sure she didn't touch herself. Not uncommon in Mormonism. Not even to wash? No. Well, I guess she'd have to wash, but don't spend too long down there. Yeah, I had a friend, and he had a bunch of brothers, and when they were taking their own personal private shower, they never knew when the dad was going to come in and rip the shower curtain back to make sure they weren't masturbating. It scarred him totally. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I never did, but I just was so afraid. Even washing down there, I was so careful. Like, mm. wow. And Emily might not yet know about Bishop interviews. Worthiness interviews. I don't. Yeah. Oh, this will mess you up sexually. Go ahead. Yeah. So every couple of years, I think it is for adults, they have to go into uh, this meeting with their bishop, who's the church leader. Uh, this person's never been to seminary, by the way. They could be your local dentist or plumber. Yeah. Not trained in any kind not of trained, anything. But they are appointed head of a congregation called a ward. And this person will determine your worthiness to get into heaven. Yeah. In fact, if you are deemed worthy, you receive a little laminated card. Are you kidding? No. Not kidding. No. Called a temple recommend. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is legit. Yeah. A temple recommend. Temple recommend. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, like a, it's like an ID saying, yes, you are worthy <laughs> yes, to go in. Worthy. And... It's like the gym. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. This yeah. dentist over here decided you were worthy of yeah. heaven. Yeah. <laughs> So the thing I think that messes people up sexually a lot is you start having these interviews when you're 12, mm. and bishops have to ask, do you obey the law of chastity? Well, a lot of 12-year-olds are like, I don't know what that is. What is chastity? So the bishop says, you know, you keep yourself morally clean. Well, what does that mean? Do you touch yourself? Mm -hmm. Have you had sexual blah, blah, blah? And if anything is like, well, I'm not sure what that is, then they go and explain it. If you go in to repent to your bishop and you're like, you know, my boyfriend and I kind of fooled around at age 16, whatever it is. The bishop will then say, well, what kind of fooling around? Did he touch any of your private parts? Was this over the clothes or under the clothes? Mm -hmm. Did you have an orgasm? How many times? How many fingers did he put in? Like very, very, I mean, these uh -huh. are teenagers. And this doesn't just stop when you're a teenager. These same questions will be asked your entire life, especially your unmarried life. So a lot of shame. So even when you get married and it's like a free-for-all, whatever sex, you don't just drop the shame and embarrassment no, of, of having not. had to go to your bishop and tell them like personal details. personal details of your sins. At least they've given you like a list of things you can try. If they're like, has anybody put a finger in you? How many fingers? Like, has they touched <laughs> you this way? Have there been yeah. mouth on genital contact? You've got like a list of things to try. Oh, here's some ideas. Never <laughs> thought of that. Thanks, Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does feel like asking invasive questions about sexual behavior among teenagers is a great way to recruit abusive people into those positions of power. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yes. So we had one listener write in about her bishop experience. She was struggling with what they call SSA or mm -hmm. same-sex attraction. Yeah. He asked her if she had you know, touched her girlfriend or friend or whatever, and she denied it. And he gestured with a couple fingers and said, not even like this. Yeah. So this stuff's real. The inappropriate questions are for real. And this person still struggles every time she touches her partner. She thinks of that interview mm -hmm. with that bishop. Mm -hmm. So this is the sort of thing we're talking about that people struggle with. Yeah. There's also men 
specifically, I would say they're not allowed to masturbate. And a young boy's drive is just incredible, I'm sure. And I would say the vast majority of Mormon boys have masturbated and had to repent to their bishop. And then a lot of times your punishment is like, well, you can't take the sacrament, which everyone sees in your congregation that you're not taking the sacrament. It's public shaming. That's exactly what it is. Anyway, there's this thing about masturbation. So then when the couples get married, the man is like, sweet, I don't have that temptation to masturbate anymore because I can have sex whenever I mm, want. No pressure. Yeah. And then the the woman is like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm the vessel to make sure he gets his rocks off so that he doesn't yeah. resort to sin. masturbation. And then yes. I caused his sin. Yeah, I it's, it's sin. such a shit show. Oh, I caused his sin. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Solutions. Solutions. Yes. Yeah, there are some specific things that have fairly straightforward fixes. So especially if I had this experience and now every time I do X, I think of that experience. That's a nice treatable issue. So if it's somebody who's like, no, actually, masturbation is fine. I am choosing to make it fine in my life. Or like sex with this kind of person is fine. I'm choosing to make it fine in my life. If you're doing that behavior and like that voice or that person's face or the gesture comes back to you. Uh, The practice is a process of systematic desensitization or graded exposure where you get to like a little bit, like a small version of that kind of stimulation. Like for example, you just think about that behavior and because the two thoughts are tied together, the other one's going to come with it. So you think about the behavior, you notice that other one and you practice Noticing that that distracting thought has emerged, you set it to one side for now. You can have that thought any other time you want to. You never have to have it if you don't want to also. And you return your attention to the pleasurable idea. This is a basic mindfulness practice of noticing what you're paying attention to and making a choice to pay attention to the thing you are choosing. And it will take time, but gradually those thoughts will decouple so that one is no longer tied to the other. And you start really gradually, literally just like thinking about the behavior and then maybe writing down what the behavior is, knowing that you're going to have this other thought that happens, but you just keep thinking about it and being like, oh, there's that other thing. I'm going to let that go and return your attention to the positive thought until you can actually engage in the behavior. And yeah, that image is going to come back and you're just going to be like, hello, image, I'm going to set you over to the side over here. And you return your attention to the thing that you are choosing for yourself. And gradually the link between the two will get weaker and weaker and weaker. Does that make sense? It It does does. make sense. I would say, too, because I know when I get these weird thoughts during any kind of intimacy, I have guilt over having that weird thought. Or it's like, oh, shit, it kind of jars me. And I'm like, oh, why? Why am I having that? Almost like I'm blaming myself. But from what I understand, you're saying it's like, dude, it's not your fault. Your brain does crazy shit. You know, it's not your fault. You just learn how to deal with it. It's nothing to do with you. And in fact, there's no more efficient way to uh, make sure you keep having that disruptive thought than to judge and blame yourself for having that disruptive thought. (laughs) Damn it. I've been doing it wrong all these years. Yeah. So when that thought comes back and you're like, God, why am I not over this yet? You just like back up and be like, of course I'm not. How many years did I spend being told this message? over and over and over again. You're going to need at least that many experiences unlearning it. Gotcha. Mm, Yeah. And actually paying attention to having the thought. To me, mindfulness is sort of like being a spectator for a second. Like you're watching yourself experience stuff or having thoughts. You can kind of take that uh, bird's eye view of what your brain's doing. Yeah. The technical term is observational distance. Boom. There you go. Gosh, I like having really smart people on the show. That was a rip on me. (laughs) (laughs) I have trouble pulling proper words from the air. I'm like, you know, that that thing that makes you feel that way. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) That's great. Mm. Do you mean vibrator? Could be. Speaking of vibrators. Highly recommend. Yes. Speaking of vibrators, I know within the Mormon church, there's kind of a split view of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Some bishops in certain congregations are hands off, just like, I I don't want to hear about it, whatever. I, I don't know. Just do what you want, just as long as it's between you two. Some bishops will be like, Uh, no mechanical equipment. That's masturbation. That's um, going for sexual pleasure. My sister-in-law, back when I was married, actually 
So in Utah, there was this time when people would have these sex toy parties where you just go and you look at them and you order stuff. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Pampered Chef. It's Pampered Chef for sex. Okay, sure. Uh, which actually is a great idea. However, in Utah, depending on who your bishop is and how old school or conservative or whatever the word, sexually anti, whatever you want to call it, her bishop heard that she was having this party, went and knocked on her door before the party and chastised her and told her to cancel the party. And she's like, oh, I was so mortified (laughs) that this grown-ass man came to me as a woman in the congregation and said, you should not be having these parties. It's their immoral. I'm assuming it was only for married women. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an innocent— For a long time, they were called marital aides. That's right. She should have been like, no, Bishop, it's a pampered chef party. That's an immersion blender. Put that down. (laughs) Without the sharp thing. Uh, So when I was married, I would have never used any kind of object for anything. Mm. I would have never touched myself in preparation, even though it's like, oh, my gosh, do we have to? Can I at least turn myself on a little bit? Um, No, never, ever, ever. No. Yeah. The guilt would have been overwhelming. So when I talk to people who are sort of like in recovery Mm -hmm. and people who are in recovery from any kind of purity culture sort of have similar experiences, there's like special flavors for each different kind of purity culture. But in general, my advice, tell me whether or not this is advice that would actually have resonated with you at the very beginning. You're like, I'm going to try masturbating. One, Viewing your relationship with your genitals as part of your relationship with your body. And if you are still a person of faith who has a sense that your body is a gift from God, considering the idea that your genitals, your reproductive system, your ability to experience pleasure is just as much a gift from God that deserves to be celebrated and to be thankful for as any other part of your body. What if that's true? Try on the possibility. And second, as you begin to masturbate, don't start with the genitals. If masturbation feels off limits, start with the most like peripheral body parts you can think of. Start by leaving on whatever clothes you feel like you need to leave on in order for it to be acceptable because we don't want to hit the brakes. We want to just do stuff that's going to let you experience the sensations your body's capable of. So touch your feet. Touch them in lots of different ways. The soft touch, light surface touch, deep pressure kind of touch, stretch and pull your tendons and muscles, play with temperature, like what kind of temperatures can your feet experience, touch your own hands and arms and calves and knees and your head and neck, your scalp is capable of so many different kinds of sensations. And these are not the body parts you've been told are completely off limits. So like what body parts can you touch without activating a sense of shame and guilt? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that you can begin to introduce yourself to the idea that your body actually belongs to you, which it sounds like in the church, the moral of the story is your body does not belong to you. Does mm-hmm. not at all. Somebody else's rules apply to how and when you get to experience anything with your body. Right. Exactly. You get to choose who owns my body. Does the church own my body or do I own my body? Yeah. Yeah. And people have to choose the church because if you choose that you own it, uh, you're just not being righteous. Yeah. You can't even choose to drink coffee, much right. less masturbate, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. So, Shelly, this sounds like a good time for a break. I agree. We'll be right back. And we're back. Hello. Well, I know we have limited time with Emily. I'd love to talk about your book some more. So, first of all, The dual control model and the brakes and accelerators, what a great concept. Yeah. Seriously, this concept just opened up almost like a world of possibility for me when I was able to name it to tame it almost, that idea Mm -hmm. uh, of writing down and exploring what my brakes were. Uh, And it's just interesting to go through that exercise of actually figuring out what yours are. Do you want to talk about this? Oh, God, I love talking about this. When I learned this, it completely changed my life, and it was 22 years ago now that I have been trying to share with as many people as possible because it made my brain explode, and I haven't seen my brain since. Nice. (laughs) This very basic idea that your sexual response mechanism in your brain works just like every other mechanism in your brain, which is a coupling of an excitatory system and an inhibitory system, or an accelerator, which responds to all those sex-related stimuli and sends that turn-on signal many of us are familiar with. And there's also brakes, 
that notice all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. And it sends the turn off signal. So the arousal process is a dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And it turns out when people struggle, even though the usual advice is about like handcuffs and lingerie and role play and all that stuff, if you like it, great. But it turns out it's very rarely a problem that there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. It's that there's too much stimulation to the brakes. And religious shaming, purity culture, absolutely hits the brakes. And it doesn't even just hit the foot brake like in the moment. It is like turning on the parking brake in your car. Mm. So if you try to drive somewhere with your parking brake on, yeah. Yeah. maybe you can get there, but it'll take a whole <laughs> lot more gas. It'll take a whole lot longer to get there. And it's going to be a lot more frustrating and a lot less fun. Mm-hmm. So the process of recovering from decades of that messaging is the process of, like, like I said, the systematic desensitization, graded exposure so that you can turn off that break, have it stop reacting to the memories of those messages. Yeah. And people vary also not just in what their break responds to, but in how sensitive their brakes are and how sensitive their gas pedals are. Some people have really, really sensitive accelerators. Teenage boys are an example of that, right? Like you're riding the school bus or like the wind blows in the wrong direction. Your teacher's shirt moves in a particular way. And that is enough. Mm -hmm. Your accelerator is so sensitive. That's all it takes. Erection. And a variety of people have more sensitive accelerators. And some people have really not very sensitive accelerators, which means it just takes a whole lot of sex-related stimuli for their brain to be like, oh, right, sex stuff. That's a good idea. (laughs) And then people vary in the sensitivity of their brakes. Some people have really sensitive brakes so that the least, like a stray thought, a stray fingernail, a stray sound can shut everything down. Those are the folks who are most likely to struggle with arousal issues, desire, orgasm, accessing pleasure. And then some people have really not sensitive breaks. And those are the folks who are most likely to be at risk for sexual compulsivity and sexual risk-taking behavior, feeling out of control in their sexual response. Well, and then there's that rabbit hole of once the breaks start, it's like, oh, I'm taking too long to orgasm. And now that becomes a break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Orgasms are like sleep in some ways, uh, which is that the single most common cause of insomnia is worrying about being able to fall asleep. Yes. <laughs> One of the most common causes to lack of orgasm or delayed orgasm is worrying about your orgasm. Because if you're like getting to a like kind of an intense level of arousal and you start that thing in your brain of like, what if I have an orgasm this time? What if I don't have an orgasm? Am I even having an orgasm right now? Is that hitting the accelerator? Or is it hitting the brakes, right? So the more you worry about it, the more you slow it down, the more you delay your access to it. So when people are having that brake hitting and it's the worry about, am I going to it? Can one use the same process of, oh, that thought just hit, push it out? Yeah, it helps in addition. So that's an important practice. And also knowing what to return your attention to, what to pay attention to instead of the worry. Mm. And that is to pay attention to the sensations that are actually happening in your body, the pleasure that's happening in your body. Mm-hmm. Stay attuned to that. It helps a lot to take orgasm off the table. That is not your goal. Pleasure is the goal, which is like, that's a really big deal for a person who is in recovery from having been told that pleasure is not allowed. Then just focusing on pleasure will in itself activate a bunch of that shit from the past, right? Yes. So you have to learn to dwell with pleasure and feel solid enough in your relationship to those sensations that that other stuff doesn't interfere. And it just takes practice. People absolutely have access to it, but it takes practice. It's easier if you start with somewhat less stigmatized pleasures. So what would count as less stigmatized pleasures than erotic pleasure? Back rub. Back rub. Great. Because that's also partnered pleasure, which is very complex, especially for women. Wait, can I insert something really quick? I said insert, she said by insert. the way. Um, so I remember in young women, so young women's, uh, for you, Emily, it's the age between 12 and 18 for girls in the Mormon church. That's definitely called a 12-year-old a woman. Right? Jeez. <laughs> and one of the lessons on morality that was given to me, and I will remember this till the day I die, the leader said, she warned us, a back rub in the front room turns into a front rub in the back room. Oh, in other words, don't no back rubs. <laughs> yeah, she's training you to keep the brakes on as early in the process as possible. Yes, mm. shut it down. Feel ashamed before it even turns erotic. That's yes. great. 
Uh, wow. Right? I don't know. So let's start with a back rub. Everybody nope. feel good about a back rub. <laughs> yeah. So how about non food pleasure? Oh, sure. I'm all about the food pleasure. Yeah. Hot bath. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. A yoga practice, if you get pleasure from moving your body in any way, mm-hmm. being able to notice the sensations of your body through any of your senses and being like, ah, that's what pleasure feels like. Let me notice now what pleasure feels like. It will actually improve every domain of your life to spend more time attending to pleasure in your body because you're rewiring your brain, making it easier to access the pleasure pathways, uh, which lets sort of like the pathways of pain and shame grow in like a forest where those trails aren't used anymore. Yes. When you start with the ones where it doesn't already activate a whole bunch of junk, it's easier so that when you begin to practice turning toward like erotic pleasure, then you know that you know how to pay attention to pleasure without shame. Mm -hmm. And you can begin practicing applying that skill to this kind of pleasure that was always off limits to you before. It's a good idea. That is awesome. I know as a Mormon woman, when I wasn't a Mormon woman, and I'm sure so many people are thinking, oh shit, yeah, that was me too. Anything that you feel pleasure from, I'll say most things, as a Mormon woman, you feel guilty. Oh yeah. Because you're supposed to always be giving. <laughs> Back to my ex-family, my one sister-in-law, she said she felt guilty when she would go get her nails done because mm-hmm. uh, it was all about her. So she's decided if I get my nails done, I'm going to take that same amount of money and give it to my church so then I don't feel guilt. Like self-pampering, no, 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 no. You are all about having everyone around you be comfortable. So, so maybe to that's turn step that, one is to learn to accept the idea of pleasuring. You're yeah, not like pleasuring okay. yourself. That sounds like masturbation. <laughs> this is an idea that comes directly from burnout, which is the second book, which I wrote with my sister. Burnout is a feeling of being overwhelmed and exhausted by everything you have to do and still worrying that you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. And the reason burnout shows up differently for women is that our script pretty universally, is that we have a moral obligation to be, here's the list, to be pretty, mm-hmm. happy, yet calm, mm-hmm. generous, and unfailingly attentive to the needs of others. And because this is a moral obligation, if we fall short even a little bit, we haven't just failed at a task. We are personally failures. Mm. Yes. And if we are personally failures, we deserve to be chastised, beat up, scolded. And if there's no one around to do it, we'll just do it to ourselves. And it's tough to come out of that. Right. So I, I would never introduce you to a problem without also giving you a solution. And there are absolutely solutions to this thing that Amelia and I call human giver syndrome, which is this idea that you have a moral obligation to sacrifice everything you have, your time, your attention, your own personal hopes and dreams, your Mm well-being, your health, sometimes your very life sacrificed on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience, right? Yep. How do you not do that anymore? Right. Um, And there's basically two answers. The first one is it cannot be done by you alone. You need other people's help. Mm. Um, Because if you come home from a long and difficult day and you're a human giver surrounded by uh, what Kate, we take this language from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann. And she says there are human givers and there are human beings. And the human beings are the people who are entitled to everything a giver gives. Um. So if you come home to a household full of human beings who feel entitled to everything, no matter how exhausted you are, they're like, oh, looks like you had a long day. What's for dinner? But if you come home to a household full of fellow givers, they notice that you are exhausted and they say, you've had a long day. Go take a nap, have a hot shower. We will cook dinner when you come down. We will eat and sit around and talk about our feelings. (laughs) It requires what Amelia and I call a bubble of love, where you are connected with people who prioritize your well-being as much as you prioritize theirs. Mm. Because we cannot individually recover from having been told that our own well-being does not matter without having it reflected back to us. Other people saying consistently, your well-being matters, your sleep matters, your rest matters, your pleasure matters, your health matters to me, and I'm going to help you protect it because it matters. Gotcha. Mm, Wow. That is a nice scenario. Right? And those women might be more likely to want to have sex. Oh, heck yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There's a novel idea. So the other one is actually the internalized component of it, 
which is like you've been fed this message so much for so long that there's a part of you that believes it. There's part of you that doesn't. There's a part of you that knows that it's bogus, right? And then there's this other part of you that recognizes that there's who you truly are. And then very far away in the distance, there's who the world expects you to be. Mm. Right. And there is this vast, unbridgeable chasm between those two things. It is unbridgeable. No one can be all the things that they are expected to be. And in this abyss of failure, in air quotes, grows what Amelia and I call the mad woman, the mad woman in the attic, which this is from Jane Eyre. The hero has his crazy ex-wife locked up in his attic. And as a metaphor, you know, who among us does not have our crazy <laughs> wife right? locked up in our attic, yelling all the mean things about us, all the ways that we are failing. She only has two choices because her job is to bridge this unbridgeable gap between who we are and who the world expects us to be. She can either be inflamed with rage at the world for having these bullshit expectations. And I imagine people who are recovering from the messages of LDS have a lot of rage that they need to process. Absolutely. The bullshit exposed on them. Or the mad woman will turn toward you and judge and blame and shame you mm. for falling short of these expectations all the time. Mm. Yeah. And when that happens, your job is not to do, like the standard kind of selfie-helpy advice would be to like shut that voice down, don't listen to it, contradict it. No, no. She's doing an important job. Humans are a massively social species. We require acceptance within our community in order to survive. We require it. Connection is a drive, a biological drive. You'll die without it, unlike sex. She's trying to help you stay alive. So when she starts yelling at you, instead of trying to shut that down, you turn toward her with kindness and courage and compassion and say, like, what are you trying to protect me from? What is your positive intention here? And is there a way I can help you to achieve that positive intention without you doing the damage that I know you don't want to do? Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, it feels like you're an observer and almost like offering uh, kindness and maybe a little advice to yourself. Yes. A part of yourself. Yeah. This is an observational distance trick. It's actually adapted from a therapy modality called internal family systems, mm. which I highly recommend for folks who are trauma survivors. The generic advice we give about this self-critical part of undoing human giver syndrome from the inside out is self-compassion. Self-compassion is wonderful, it is powerful, and works when you are not a survivor of significant trauma, abuse, or neglect, which uh, rules out oh, kind of a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out when you have a significant history of trauma, abuse, or neglect, self-compassion can actually activate a stress response. Oh. And make you feel worse. So if you've tried to practice self-compassion and have been like, I hate this. Why does this feel so terrible? It might be because it's activating a bunch of old, like, historic stuff in your body. And it will be easier both to practice compassion toward other people and compassion toward this sort of part of yourself. Letting yourself get distance. Letting yourself unblend from the part of yourself that's beating you up and being able to be compassionate toward this part of you. It's not self-compassion. It's compassion for this part of you. Wow, that is interesting. So coupled with that and learning to allow yourself to experience pleasure, even if it's in just the smallest way, at least at first, sounds like a huge help. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned stress uh, briefly with the book Burnout. Congratulations on that book, by the way. Thank you. Do you want to talk about completing that cycle of stress and how that factors in? Yes. And this is going to be really important, especially for people who grew up believing that they owe it to everyone else to sacrifice their well-being. Like, you know how with self-care, the sort of rhetoric is you can't pour from an empty cup? Mm -hmm. If you're a human giver... Uh, no, you can't pour from an empty cup, but if you're cast as a human giver, people come up to you and say, hey, what are you doing with that empty cup? Ricky over there has all that water and not enough cups. Why don't you give your cup to Ricky? <laughs> <laughs> right. Take the damn cup, too. Yeah. So the idea of taking care of yourself is already difficult enough, but then also we have a totally incorrect conceptualization of what it means to like reduce your stress. 
Step one is recognizing that dealing with your stressors, which is like the stuff that activates your stress, is a separate process from dealing with the stress itself. The stress itself is this physiological event that happens, the adrenaline and the cortisol and the physiological changes like increase in heart rate, increase in your respiration rate, your digestion changes, your immune system changes, your reproductive system changes. Every physical system in your body reacts to this perceived threat in the environment. And evolutionarily, it's there to help you run away from lions, right? Yeah. Sure. So when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? Uh, you either run away or you get mauled. Right. Either you get eaten by the lion, in which case, you know, none of the rest of this matters, or you escape the lion. You outrun the lion. So you, like, were in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, savannah of Africa, you run back to your tribe. Somebody sees you coming, opens the door, lets you in, slams your shoulder against the door, and the lion is still chasing and roaring and pounding, and eventually, oh, the lion gives up. It realizes it's not going to get you, and you watch the lion disappear. And then how do you feel? Phew. Yeah, relieved. You're, <laughs> mm-hmm. you're so grateful to be alive. You love your friends and family. The sun seems to shine brighter, right? That's the complete <laughs> mm-hmm. stress response cycle. And it may appear that it is dealing with the stressor that completed the cycle. In fact, it was dealing with the stress response cycle in your body that completed it. Because we are these days, alas, almost never chased by lions. Mm-hmm. A culture that tells you you owe it to the world to sacrifice everything you have and it's selfish for you to take time to care for your own body. That's a stressor. Yeah, right. And the process of dealing with that, like if you're like— Kids put on your shoes. 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 Like, that's a stressor. And the way you deal with it is you can't physically run away from it, right? right. Well, I mean, <laughs> I know. I you could super glue the shoes to the kids' feet. There you go. Uh, you know. <laughs> so the process of dealing with the stressor is now separate from the process of dealing with the stress itself. So it is not inappropriate to, like, Put your stress on the back burner and do all the socially appropriate things you need to do in order to deal with this stressor, whatever it is, traffic or kids or coworkers or whatever, partners. Mm-hmm. And then when you have the opportunity, you do things that complete the physiological stress response cycle. Physical activity is going to be the most efficient one because that's what, how the system is designed to work. It doesn't have to be exercise. It can be literally like standing up and tightening, like big deep breath in and tight holding every muscle in your body, tight, 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 hard, more than slow, 10 count a second so that your body's kind of like, okay, I'm ready to stop. Oh, I'm ready to stop. Don't quite stop. Don't quite stop. And then (sighs) flop. That all by itself can be enough to sort of like siphon off the worst of the stress so that you can stay well enough to continue with your day. Mm -hmm. It can also be imagination. You just like go into a room and imagine yourself conquering and defeating your foe. We know that the imagination is very powerful. Obviously, it can start a stress response cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever had anxiety, if you've ever just worried about something that isn't currently happening, that's your imagination activating a stress response cycle. And just as it can do that, it can complete a stress response cycle. Amelia uh, learned how to complete the stress response cycle this way. She was on the elliptical machine because she worked out most days because she's a good girl, even though she hates it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as she was learning how to do this with her body, she imagined herself as Godzilla stomping on the, the university campus where she was trying to get her degree, the bursar's office in the parking lot. And like, <laughs> she just like got very emotionally, so you let yourself physically, viscerally imagine conquering and defeating the enemy. And when she finished that workout for the first time in her life, she ended exercise not just tired and sweaty, but feeling elated and powerful. Mm. And that is the feeling of having completed the stress response cycle, right? You're grateful to be alive. You'd love your friends and family. The sun seems to shine brighter. It's a physical event that happens. Connection is another one. I will stop after this one. Connection, it can be connection in any form, like with other humans. I love the 30-second hug. If there's someone, you got to really like and trust someone to hug them for 30 seconds in a (laughs) row. But if you have that relationship, then that's exactly what happens. You put your arms around that person, they put arms around you, and you stay and breathe together. Suzanne Iacenza calls it hugging until relaxed. Wow. Because your body is literally remembering, when I am with this person, I have come home. Hmm. When I'm with this person, my body is a safe place for me to live. 
Does that make sense? It Absolutely. does. We need to practice that more because I get to about 29, 28, 29 with you. So we'll have to up that <laughs> I'm a like, can we hug for an hour, please? <laughs> it's not about the 30 seconds. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> so I have a quick question that has to do with this. Is there a way that people get partially through the stress cycle and then just they just halt? Yeah. Our bodies are amazing. They will hold on to incomplete stress response cycles for you indefinitely. That chemistry will just spin and spin and spin, waiting for its opportunity to release. Given long enough, it will set up camp in an organ or an organ system. And unfortunately, it will gradually degrade that organ system and cause uh, heart disease and IBS. Mm. So it will degrade your body, but it's doing its best to wait for you. This is how just stress causes diseases. Yeah, It's how just stress is more likely to kill us than most of the stressors that we experience day to day. Mm -hmm. Wow. And how does that relate to your sex life? Stress. Oh, gosh. So stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, rage, we've all got it. Um, It's broadly called negative affect, which just means like uncomfortable emotions. It hits the brakes. It makes it more difficult for people to be interested in sex and to have access to pleasure. So. If you've dealt with all your stressors, like you've crossed off everything on your to-do list, which all by itself would be spectacular, that doesn't mean that you've dealt with the stress in your body. Mm -hmm. And it's the stress in your body, really, that's keeping the brakes on. So even if you're like, I did all the things I'm supposed to do, I'm showing up at the time that my partner and I arranged to have like sexy times, but my body is in this state of hypervigilance. Like if you're currently being chased by a lion, is that a good time to be messing around? Not really. (laughs) Not really, right? So you have to let your body know that your body is safe right now by doing some of these behaviors that complete the stress response cycle. Interesting. That makes sense. I know for myself and a lot of other people, I'll be like, I feel anxious, but I don't know why. And it it could be why I'm good, like all my stuff's done, but I'm still just wound up. So you're thinking yeah. like the hug or the exercise. Yeah. There's like 10 evidence-based strategies just in chapter one of burnout, which I think you can read online for free. Nobody even has to buy a book. Oh, wow. You can just like read chapter one, I think in the Amazon profile of the book. Cool. Like all these different strategies for completing the stress response cycle, whatever works for you and whatever you truly have access to. Because not everybody has access to exercise. Not everybody enjoys it. Not everybody has access to someone they can hug for 30 seconds. It's great that there are so many choices. Mm-hmm. There's going to be something that you can access. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's exactly the experience of when you're like free floating stress, anxiety, where it's like your brain is looking for something to be worried about. Right. Yes. And can't find it. That means that you have dealt with your stressors, but not the stress. Mm. God, makes that makes so much sense. And I never... I honestly never put that together. Like, I'm just anxious and I don't know why. Well, so I realized I skipped forward to what's in chapter four. So let's back up and talk about context just for a second. So I love the idea. It's like, oh, we're recreating a romantic getaway. And huh, what happened? I'm, I can't manufacture those same feelings from two years ago. Right. We went back to the same, you know, B&B in the Poconos. <laughs> yeah. But two years ago, we didn't have kids. <laughs> Two years ago, like all kinds of things were different. Mm. Sure. So you'd like to change location, but you're not changing the context. And context is both your external circumstances and your internal state. And it profoundly influences whether or not your brain has access, has the capacity to interpret a sensation as pleasurable. I talk about all kinds of like nerdy brain science, but the short version is like tickling. I know it's not everybody's favorite. But if you're a certain special someone and you are in the middle of some like hot and heavy things and that person tickles you, that could feel fun and good and lead to additional things. But if your part, that's exact same certain special someone tickles you while you're in the middle of an argument, <laughs> there is no way you're going to experience it as pleasurable, right? It's the same person. It's the same physical sensation. But because the context is different, yeah. your brain interprets it in a totally different way. So understanding, like, what is the context that grants my brain access to interpreting a sensation as pleasurable? Because when the context is right, your brain will interpret almost anything as potentially erotic. And when the context is wrong, your brain will interpret 
nothing. Mm. It will interpret things that in a different context would be erotic. It will interpret those things as threats to be avoided. And nobody wants to think about that sexy time with their partner as like a threat to be avoided. Yeah. Right? And yet that is so many people's experience. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeesh. Not mine with you, babe. No, baby. Mostly. Aww. Ours is perfect. Just kidding. Aww. Aww. <laughs> yeah. No, we do pretty good. We do. So there's assessments. There's worksheets. You can get the worksheets on my website for free. Um, and there's also uh, the Come As You Are workbook has even more worksheets for figuring out what context works for you and what context to avoid. So even though you're in the same like physical space, that doesn't mean you're in the same context. So digging mm. deeper into what is it. Actually, in the worksheets, I ask people to think of three different settings where they've had great sexual experiences or to imagine three different settings where they feel like they would have a great sexual experience and break it down. Because when you think about more than one, you start to see those patterns. Uh, for, I was talking to a friend who literally did this, and what she figured out was that it wasn't just about like vacation sex. She was in a long-distance relationship, and she found that when they did get together in person, there was this kind of expectation and sense of obligation to have sex, and it was that expectation and obligation that was really getting in the way. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't about where they were. It was her internal experience of feeling like she was supposed to, that she had to. Mm. That's never a good feeling. Mm -mm. And yet how many people feel it all the time, especially women? Sounds like especially Mormon women who feel like it is their job to be a vessel to prevent their husband from sinning. My God. Absolutely. I know. Absolutely. No pressure, right, no. ladies? No. So there's so much more to get to. We've got a few... Uh, listener questions for you. Oh, great. Let's uh, throw to a quick commercial. And when we come back, we're going to dive into some listener comments and questions. Be right back. And we're back. And we're back. Just like that. <laughs> okay. So here's some questions from our listeners. Can using any type of device like a shower head or a vibrator when you are young and exploring and or learning to masturbate make it harder to learn to orgasm manually or with a partner later in life? Oh, this is such an important question because the answer is the opposite is true. Learning how to have an orgasm with a device, with a shower head, with a vibrator, with your own hands teaches your body what pleasure feels like and what sorts of stimulation lead to increased experiences of pleasure and even up to orgasm, which means that when you get to a sexual experience with a partner, so when you get to your first experiences with a partner, especially if you're raised as a human giver, you're raised to sacrifice your well-being for other people's, that means you sacrifice your pleasure for your partner's pleasure. When you get to your early erotic experiences with other people, a whole lot of your attention gets taken over away from the sensations in your body onto whether or not this other person's expectations are being met. Like, do I look right? Does this feel good for them? Am I doing it right? Are they satisfied? You're thinking about like the, you know, like jiggly on your belly and the cottage cheese on the back of your thighs and the, your facial expression and your posture. None of that stuff is activating the accelerator, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But if you have that strong foundation of knowing what pleasure feels like in your body and what stimulation can increase it, then again, it's like you've reinforced those pathways. They are very stable. You've got access to them, even in a context where your brain is sort of like, ah, there's so many things happening for me to monitor and pay attention to. Uh, this kind of experience is why something like 11% of college-age women have an orgasm the first time they're with a new partner compared to two-thirds had an orgasm last time they had sex with a partner they'd been with for at least six months. Because mm. that part of your brain that's monitoring and, like, trying to, like, make sure everything is happening right can relax because it trusts this partner, it trusts your body. But that's all made easier if you already know what pleasure feels like in your body. And I want to add to this, learning how to orgasm with a partner. I'm, like, doing massive air quotes while, while I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Often, that's a euphemism people use for having orgasms from penile vaginal intercourse. Mm -hmm. And it's just a fact of reality that only a quarter to a third of people with vaginas are reliably orgasmic that way. Mm -hmm. The remaining two-thirds to three-quarters are sometimes 
rarely or never orgasmic from penile vaginal intercourse alone. And so if you're like, I'm really struggling to have orgasm with my partner, and what you mean is I'm struggling to have orgasm from vaginal stimulation, that's because the vagina is really far away from the clitoris. Mm-hmm. And the clitoris for most people with vulvas is the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. So um, <laughs> a lot of people can actually get to a place where they worry that their masturbation is why they can't have orgasms from vaginal stimulation when actually the reason they can't have orgasms from vaginal stimulation is because most people with vulvas don't have orgasms from vaginal stimulation. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, in religion, especially Mormonism, there's this licked cupcake metaphor or chewed piece of gum. Yeah. Where you wouldn't want a cupcake that's been licked already, would you? Or you wouldn't want an apple with a bite taken out of it. That's feeding into that whole idea of keeping yourself chaste and pure. I was a little bit promiscuous in my 20s. I don't have any guilt over it. In retrospect, I think, wow, I sure got a lot of practice. You learn so much. To be better at this sex thing. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, so I just flipped that idea around thinking more practice better lover later on. Yeah. Whereas I felt like a whore because I had had sexual experiences before marriage. And then anytime sex didn't work well with my husband and I, which was most of the time, I was blamed for having had previous intercourse. And that's why. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the twisted logic people get into. If people can like, like chewed up gum and the like half used, like replace all of that with the idea that experiences you choose for yourself are growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I use the garden metaphor throughout the book that on the day you're born, you're given this plot of rich and fertile soil. And immediately your family and your culture of origin start to plant ideas about bodies and sexuality and safety and love and beauty. And by the time you get to an adult, you have this garden and you didn't get to choose any of it. Yeah. <laughs> so as an adult, you have the opportunity, if you want, to Go in row by row and make choices about what to keep and what to pull and throw on the compost heap to rot. And as you do that, you will get the garden you chose for yourself. And that is growth. That is expanding your access to pleasure and beauty and joy, bodily autonomy, the delights of life. So experience is growth. Couldn't agree more. And so to this listener, yeah, use the shower head, the hot tub jet, the vibrator. Practice, practice, practice. It's just going to yeah. lead to great things later, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why masturbation is one of the most commonly assigned homework assignments for people in sex therapy. And it's a barrier a lot of sex therapists have to work with that people are like, but I can't masturbate. No, that's wrong and sinful and I can never bring myself to masturbate. For those people who have that negative idea, the shame around masturbation, would you, again, start with your feet, start with massage, start with other ways to receive pleasure, maybe? Yeah. And add to that, considering the possibility that your pleasure and your genitals are a gift. Really quickly, there's a Mormon sex therapist who was telling people who were having troubles in their marriage about masturbation. And someone actually reported her and she was excommunicated from the Mormon church Mm -hmm. for giving that professional advice. She's a friend of ours. So that's how deep it runs in some Mm -hmm. of these very strict religions. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is. When it's that deep, then participation in the church is the opposite of even good sex, even consensual (laughs) sex. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah. Ooh, I want to jump to this next question because it's really interesting. Can your body ever become allergic, in quotes, to your partner? I swear my body would develop issues to make sex impossible anytime I was at the end of my rope with my ex-husband. Yes. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Next Next question. (laughs) (laughs) So relationship is an important factor in creating a context. And when you're in the midst of conflict with your partner— that's very likely going to hit the brakes and shut things down and make it more difficult for your body to like experience the accelerator being activated and the brakes releasing. So yeah, your body will literally interpret any touch from a person with whom you are in the midst of big conflict as irritating, uncomfortable, even painful. Yeah. Mm. 
Wow. That is a delightful reality of how our brains interpret sensation. Uh, yeah. If you've got that resentment with a partner, maybe get that worked out before you even consider being yeah. sexual, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there are cases where you can work through resentment and frustration through touch, but it for sure doesn't sound like it in the case of the question asker. Mm-hmm. Like if your body receives your partner's touches, like get the nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go set the table. Right. <laughs> Be useful. Like there's nothing broken. There's nothing wrong. That's your body reacting appropriately to the situation as it is right now. You're not broken. The situation is broken. Yeah. So work on the situation, the context, and your body will respond. Makes sense. Okay. Can you comment on the loss of interest in sex after sexual abuse? Oh, yeah. So... Another super, super important question. When people have had sex used against them as a weapon, what their brain is learning is that anything that activates the accelerator also activates the brake. Like, this is sexual, therefore it is in itself a threat. Mm. So, makes perfect sense that a person's brakes would come on anytime they're confronted with anything remotely sexual. And the intervention is the same. Uh, as the graded exposure, systematic desensitization, decoupling the experience of arousal and sexual experience from having the breaks. So this is going, it's going to, it requires a lot more gentleness and patience of being able to experience arousal and pleasure, start on your own if you possibly can, and allowing your body to have a very gentle experience of that and learn, look, it's safe. It's happening right now, and it's safe. It's happening right now, and I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And so the break can be like, oh, okay. And then like a week later, you do some more stuff at a slightly higher level of intensity, and your breaks will come right back on, and you're going to continue to stay safe. The reason it's often easier to do this alone is because another partner is a great big complication. And so learning how to relax and still feel safe with a partner for some people is an added level of difficulty. So it's like leveling up in the game of eroticism. But I have absolutely worked with people who preferred to practice this with a partner. Like if there was someone they really loved and trusted, a woman who has had some stuff happening, and it was much easier for her to practice this with her partner because he was an anchor who felt profoundly safe to her. Mm. But of course, if your partner is not a person with whom you have that absolute experience of deep trust, affection, admiration, then that's not the right person to have with you as you're healing your trauma. That makes perfect sense. And let me just like giant hope happens all the time, happens every day. People heal and recover from trauma and reclaim bodily autonomy. They reclaim their bodies. They reclaim their eroticism. So giant hope, it works. That's amazing. So listener, there's hope. That's fantastic. I love it. It just takes patience and being really kind and gentle with yourself. Like you were abused. Yeah. Your sexuality was used against you as a weapon. And I am angry that that happens to so many people. Yeah. And it's no fucking fair that anybody would have to do the work of disentangling a sense of threat from their erotic experience. And I know for sure that people do it all the time. And all my work is driven by the power of seeing how people grow and reclaim their access to their own bodies, even after terrible things have happened. Thank you for validating people in that situation. We have so many listeners that fall into that category. So thank you. That's amazing. Thank you so much. A question about lack of sexual desire due to perimenopause or slash menopause, even when in a mutually sexually satisfying relationship. Yeah. The good news is that uh, hormones do not by themselves necessarily cause very much change in sexual interest. Being in perimenopause myself, I had my first hot flash in uh, March of 2020. I was at the Orlando airport in the security line. Very memorable. (laughs) Sweating in the line. (laughs) So I've been like digging deep into this research. Uh, I'm very interested. It turns out there's no specific hormone change that causes a change in sexual interest. What happens is our relationship with our own bodies and our own sense of our sexuality, our identities as sexual people undergoes a shift. And no matter how much hard work we did in our 20s or our 30s to love our bodies and embrace our sexuality, if we are lucky enough to age into perimenopause and then menopause, we're going to have to relearn how to love 
this body and embrace this sexuality, which is, it changes all the damn time. Right. And is a gift because like the ones who get older, the lucky ones. Mm. Yeah. If you can look and experience what's happening in your body is like, I get to be alive still. (laughs) Right. Let me not underestimate and dismiss the physical discomfort as well as the psychological drama that happens. I'm experiencing it myself, so I know. Like, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And it does not have to get in the way of erotic connection. There's sort of two paths people can take around menopause, which is either to be like, well, that's over now. I guess I'm never going to do that again. And they may be like, phew, or they may wish it were different. Or they may be like, wait a minute. What if all that stuff I learned about who I'm supposed to be as a sexual person? And what if none of that applies to me? Hmm. What if I'm allowed to do and be anything I want? Then they are liberated to explore deeper and further into their erotic selves and their erotic relationship than they ever have been before. So the nature of the desire you experience is going to be different. And this is actually exactly why I updated Come As You Are. The desire chapter now talks about responsive desire, which emerges in response to pleasure, versus spontaneous desire, which emerges in anticipation of pleasure, and magnificent desire, which emerges when what you want, when you want sex, is not just orgasm or just to like have a physical experience, but to be seen more clearly, to be known more fully by your partner, to know your partner more fully, to see them more fully. If you're Exploring each other's erotic terrain. Magnificent desire is the experience of being motivated to step beyond the boundaries of what you already know of each other into the unknown. Hmm. And you don't know what you're going to find there. You could hand in hand take a step into the darkness and it's a cliff and you fall together. And when that is the experience you're looking for, that's magnificent desire. Who cares about spontaneous, horny, can't wait to put my tongue in your mouth? I want, like, (laughs) deliberate, structured, in my calendar, we're going to go somewhere dark in my psyche together, and it's going to blow our minds. I love it. (laughs) By the way, erotic terrain is my new favorite expression. I like it. Uh, That and little rat jacket. Little rat jacket. I think that was, what, (laughs) chapter two or three? I don't know. I know we don't have time to go into everything, but Iggy Pop. Little Rat Jacket, get the book. It's fantastic. (laughs) The one thing that we didn't talk about is um, attachment styles and sex. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's a whole thing, but I I came up with a great idea for you. Mm -hmm. Instead of Valentine's Day cards, you could market a whole line of attachment object cards for Valentine's. That's so great. You're welcome. I love that. (laughs) Do you have an example? No, well, I just came up with the idea. Give me a minute. (laughs) You are my home base. (laughs) When you leave, I am homesick, even though I'm the one who's at home. There you go. That's sweet. I want that one. You like that? I do. Make me that one. (laughs) Is there anything you want to say about attachment styles quickly, or is that just too complicated to get into right now? The ultra short version is the more secure your attachment is, like the more stable and safe your relationship is, the higher the quality of the sex People may find that in a stable, trusting relationship, their spontaneous desire for sex kind of goes away. Because when your relationship is unstable, sex is one of the tools we humans use to uh, stabilize our relationship, to reinforce it. So an unhappy relationship can actually result in an increased experience of spontaneous desire while a stable, truly happy, trusting relationship results in a decreased experience of spontaneous desire. Yet another reason to be like, spontaneous desire is bunkum. Who cares about spontaneous desire? Mm -hmm. I want to be in a happy, loving relationship where we prioritize each other's well-being where sex matters enough to us that we show up for each other's bodies without having it to be like, I totally can't wait to like jump your bones. Mm -hmm. Spontaneous desires for the birds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying it doesn't need to be like in terms of goals. It's like the worst possible goal to have. (laughs) I think she's being funny. I think she is. <laughs> that might be irony right there. I'm not really sure. Uh-huh. I'd have to ask Alanis Morissette about the right definition oh, for what geez. that is. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Is there anything that we didn't cover 
that you think would be useful to our audience? The thing to return to over and over again is that you are already whole and normal. And whatever's happening with your sexuality is an appropriate response to a really dysfunctional and inappropriate world. You are never the problem. The intervention, the cure for whatever distress you're experiencing is kindness and compassion. And ask your body what it needs. Trust your body. Listen to your body. And I know that a lot of us were raised to believe other people's opinions about our bodies more than we believe our bodies themselves. Mm. So if you can practice trusting your body and allowing it to tell you what it needs, it will know the answer every time, even when you don't. That's awesome. That is awesome. Oh, Emily, thank you so much for being here today. This, this was such been a pleasure. Awesome. I yeah. know. It was a pleasure for me. This is my favorite stuff to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're good at talking about it. Yeah. You maybe maybe you stuff. should make a career out of this. Huh. <laughs> hey, uh, have you ever thought about like writing a book or something? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it crossed my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like maybe this New York Times bestseller, Come As You Are. And your new book. Yeah. Burnout. We might have to beg you to come back on and talk I about know. that one. You should have Amelia on, my co-op. She's a musician. Oh. So uh, she has written songs for basically all of the really big, important ideas in the book. She's very entertaining. Oh, my oh, gosh. Wow. Okay. That sounds fantastic. Hook us up. Maybe I'll uh, reach out to Richard later. Maybe he's got the hookup he's for the Amelia planner. as well. Yeah. <laughs> that Richard. He's handy. He sure is. Here's a shout out to Richard. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. <laughs> Ours is a relationship between fellow human givers. Uh, oh, that's lovely. That's I guess we're wrapped up. Um, our guest has been, once again, Dr. Emily Nagoski. You sound so official when I call you doctor. Mm-hmm. May I call you doctor, doctor? Oh, God. <laughs> Sex educator and author of Come As You Are. What a great book. I yeah. really, really enjoyed it. Emily, thank you. Thank you once again so much for being on Latter-day Lesbian Podcast. So happy to have you. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Well, Shelly, that was amazing. Yeah? Yeah. I really kind of want to be her friend and just get advice all the time. Get some sex advice. Mm-hmm. Do you need sex advice? Not now. I mean. <laughs> and now you're an expert. I do admit that sometimes I have weird thoughts creep in my head when we're getting a little sexy. So really? I loved, you know, the advice of of not feeling ashamed and not being like, oh my God, not this again. You just being like, oh, I'm having that thought. Okay. Having that bye-bye thought. thought. Yeah. Bye-bye thought. Um, and then if it sneaks back in, just see you later thought. And I think that's such a great practice. I think as ex- a lot of ex-religious women were so used to our first impulse of being guilt and shame, and mm. it's our fault. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime the thought comes like, ah, fuck, guilt and shame, it's my fault. I can't believe I'm having this thought. That sucks. So I'm going to practice that. I love it. And for anyone who has purchased this book, there is a worksheet after every chapter where you can document some of the things that you're feeling around some of these subjects mentioned in the book and see where you land. I think it's such a great exercise if you're, you know, hoping to improve your sex life. Yep. Well, we don't have time to thank patrons today. But we are thinking of you. We are. You are in our thoughts. We're thanking you in our heads, but we (laughs) will thank you publicly and give you new names very soon. Yes, we will. No one wants to miss out on their new name. Um, It's always a treat, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I think it gets worse and worse as we go, but whatever. People still are thankful for their new names, no matter how shitty they are. So thank you for your thankfulness. Uh, yeah, or if you're just tolerating yours, thank you for your support. We yeah, that's really fine appreciate too. That's it. fine. That, we get it. That's fine too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we didn't give Emily a new name. Mm. Damn it. Missed opportunity. <laughs> I did give her that sweet Valentine's card idea. Though. That's true. She'll thank me later. Uh-huh. Speaking of thanking, should we thank Dan from Extension Audio? Probably should. Thanks for leaving it in, Dan. Thank you. And everybody, please steer clear of those cults because they're no joke. No joke at all. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you.